Welcome to The Screwball Story, a podcast that explores movies from one of classical Hollywood's most beloved genres, screwball comedy. I'm your host, Olympia Kiriakou, and each week I'll be taking you on a deep dive into one screwball classic. On this episode, Chris Cassingham will join me once again to talk about fast-talking dames, the screwball woman trope, and Howard Hawks. Chris is a film programmer, curator, and critic scheming new ways to screen new and undistributed independent American cinema across the pond. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Chris. Thank you so much for joining me again on the pod. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Listeners who... Um, worked through season one will probably recognize you from our Ernst Lubitsch episode from um, before. And for those of you who are new, though, um, can you give us a little background on when you first discovered classical Hollywood and like what drew you to this period of, of film history? I don't know if I can point it to something specific, but I imagine it's something similar to what I alluded to in the Lubitsch episode where I talked about how um, the shop around the corner was like a staple Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. So I imagine that's one of the sources of kind of my my love, or at least my awareness of it. I do also remember films like, they're less classical Hollywood, um, but films like The Music Man and The Sound of Music were huge mm-hmm. staples in my house. We were a very musical household. So those were, you know, very regular on the art, like viewing um in our viewing habits. So um, that's also, I think, kind of one of the sources. But um, I don't know, it's, I think my, the real, any sort of academic or more, I don't know, mature interest in classical Hollywood came, you know, in, in college and afterwards, um, when I started to think about pursuing a career in film, pursuing higher education in film, um, that's really when it began in earnest um, in any sort of, you know, yeah, I guess academic or academic way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me, I think I've mentioned this on our Lewis episode too, but you, I think you tend to start with like the bigger films, like the, you know, The Sound of Music or The Music Man. For me, it was Marilyn Monroe. And then you kind of work okay, yeah. in, you find your niche. Yeah, it's fun. It's a whole like world to explore. And there's so many avenues, which is mm-hmm. so great about classical Hollywood. And when we were discussing, you know, possible topics for for this episode, I think you were the one who actually suggested, you know, women in screwball comedy after seeing the recent, the BFI, the British Film Institute, for those of you listening, um, their series on Hawks, Howard Hawks' women. And I'm I'm so sad I missed that. First of all, how was it? Well, it was great. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm also sad you missed something like that (laughs) because, I mean, it doesn't happen all that often, I think. I mean, you you get the the screenings of these films by themselves kind of all the time but to sort of concentrate them uh in a in their own space for an entire month is less uh common um and i was very lucky that it was happening in my last month in london itself so it was like a great way to sort of uh, kind of cap off my my time in the uk was with that season so yeah i got to see some new things, revisit some classics that I just was dying to see on a big screen that I hadn't seen on a big screen for the first time. So it was really, it was really great. And yeah, it was this sort of 
I, I, I texted you about it when I, I guess it was back in April because they announced like their seasons, the BFI announces their seasons relatively well in advance. Mm-hmm. And so I saw on Twitter that they had announced the Howard Hawks season. I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, this is obviously a topic you'll be, you know, aware of. Um, yeah. and, it would, I, I, and I just suggested that it would be a cool podcast episode for, as like a concentration. And then you were like, well, do you want to do it with me? And I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> Of course. Twist my think, arm, I guess. <laughs> I think you're like the, the auteur guy now. You've now done Lubitsch and now Hawks. <laughs> oh, gosh. Too much pressure. <laughs> no pressure. But I think it is an interesting topic, though, because especially thinking about it in terms of screwball comedy, because Hawks, I don't know if I can think of a director who more singularly influenced our perception of screwball comedy broadly, but also like the screwball heroine specifically. And... I think like his name is very much like synonymous with screwball and how would you define his his comedy style and his type of the type of humor that you see in his films well he's i mean hawks is really well known for his sort of masculine sensibilities Mm -hmm. and i mean that's not anything particularly special on the surface i mean hollywood is was for all intents and purposes only male dominated Mm -hmm. uh actor wise um yeah of course, like the sensibilities of the humor and any sort of kind of, uh, you know, sort of undercurrent of whatever emotion, whether it's the humor or the drama or whatever, is Mm going to be like kind of masculine in nature. Yeah. But I think, and I mean, and I don't know if I can distill it into any sort of like a few words, but like Hawks has his own sort of masculine touch. I mean, I have Lubitsch on the mind just because we've been alluding to that episode, But he sort of has his own kind of signature masculine sensibility in the way that Lubitsch has his own sensibilities when it comes to romantic comedy. Mm -hmm. And that happens to do, at least for Hawks, I think it has to do a lot with less about the scenarios that kind of make up the, the, the narratives of his films and more to do with the characters that he is interested in. Because you'll find so many different, you know, plots and scenarios in his films that when you actually sort of think about it are quite similar to each other across his filmography yeah a lot of that a lot of them have to do center around groups of men that are kind of isolated or insular in themselves that are you know besieged upon or infiltrated or you know influenced by the presence of a woman Mm -hmm. uh Kind of a, a signature sort of Hoxian premise, at least when it comes to his comedy. So broadly, those are kind of what I think about when I think about a, a like a Howard Hawks screwball comedy is the contrast between like the the sensibilities of gender, which mm-hmm. are quite distinct for him, yeah. and oftentimes a clash. And 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 what is also central to screwball comedy in general is a, is a clash between uh, social classes as well. Mm-hmm texting about a uh, ball of fire because I revisit we both I guess we both revisited it or I at least revisited it in anticipation of this podcast yes um and t- yeah it's it just a, a one of a prime examples of like a kind of clash of classes mm-hmm. um is between the kind of the stuffy professors led by Gary Cooper and the nightclub singer uh, Sugar Puss O'Shea, played by Barbara <laughs> Stanwyck. So, yeah, it, it's the the comedy comes from the sort of conflict and romantic possibilities of those 
you know, divergent economic classes and, mm -hmm. you know, gender differences. Definitely. He's a very actor forward director and his character, he allows his characters to his actors to breathe and they the characters then become very uh, fleshed out and and well rounded. Um, and I mean, to that point of uh, Ball of Fire, I, it's one of my favorite <laughs> screwball comedies, I think, of all time. And I think a lot of it is down to the dynamic between, you know, Barbara Stanwyck's character, Sugarpuss O'Shea, and the professors, and also Gary Cooper, specifically his character, Bertram. Um, what do you think Stanwyck brings to that that role? And what do you think makes her like the ideal actress for that type of character? Mm, well, I think I... I... Apart from maybe Carol Lombard, I can't think of anyone more well-suited to that character. Mm -hmm. And I think it comes from, I mean, Barbara Stanwyck has like a sort of a worldwide sensibility that comes from her like very real life hardships and upbringing yeah. in Brooklyn, which are kind of well-documented. Um, it like hardened her as a person. Yeah. And so I think that that sort of comes across through like humor in this case, mm -hmm. uh, in Ball of Fire. She has like, she's... She's wise to the world because she, her character is a sort of a gritty nightclub singer dating this mob boss. So she's kind of tied to a lot of different strands of the sort of underworld um, mm -hmm. that are both public facing with her like role as a singer and like, you know, very secretive as like this gangster's mall. So she's in a couple, in a, one of the scenes early on, she's coming off stage after having done an extremely public performance and is then kind of shuffled backstage by her gangster boyfriend's uh, underlings telling her about this kind of you know you know dicey situation that he's in and how she has to go into hiding so she brings like a real awareness to a role like this because she's you know you can just sort of feel the life experience in her performance yeah and she's also kind of sort of in contrast to that and at least to, in the character that she plays in Ball of Fire, she's extremely intelligent as an actor. She's mm -hmm. she has some of the, she's like the the most depth of some of like a lot of the actors that like emerged in this era. She's yeah. she's so much nuance, so much complexity mm -hmm. for a character who supposedly on the surface doesn't. She's brought she's her her primary her initial role in this film is just to be this pretty girl who speaks in slang that mm -hmm. Gary Cooper's character then can kind of glean knowledge from. Yeah. But she, as a character and informed by the person that I think Barbara Stanwyck is, mm -hmm. eventually offers so much more to the film and to the characters. Absolutely. And in, I mean, Barbara Stanwyck to me is like the best classical Hollywood actress and that she is she was so diverse. She had such a strong screen presence and she was so smart with her with how she approached her her characters and i think yeah. with sugar puss it's like she the, the scene where she first arrives at their house and then they open the door and you see her and she's kind of doing like the little like hat tip wave kind of thing it's like this jolt of energy that she brings to their house but also to the film broadly and like she's so modern and and playful and you really need that in this type of character to make that contrast that you were talking about earlier really come alive and what's interesting about that scene or that sort of partial scene is that it's kind of a key turning point in the film because mm -hmm. at up until then we were you know 
following this this film from Gary Cooper's perspective as the mm -hmm. professor. Yeah. He had seen her performance from his perspective because he was going to use her for, you know, his language studies on on slang. Yeah. But the second she opens the door, I mean, we've been in the the, the taxi with her and her boyfriend's sort of underlings mm -hmm. where they've hatched the, or where she's hatched the plan that she'll stay with this professor who's taken an interest in her academically mm -hmm. but she'll use that as an excuse to just hide out so all of a sudden she's gone from you know the object to essentially one of the subjects or maybe the subject of the film as yeah. the woman who's now subtly and surreptitiously really in charge of everything um <laughs> so that entrance so that you know that door opening is a real turning point you mm -hmm. know in terms of the character dynamics and what Hawks is interested in saying about, you know, specifically about the gender dynamic, about gender dynamics with this film. Definitely. Yeah. She's in charge of, you know, every scene that she's in really for a, a long, at least a long point of the film. And one scene that stands out to me is when she and some of the other subjects that Gary Cooper has enlisted to sort of teach him slang, she's like the middleman between their world and, and his world. And like, she's sort of right. translating, I guess, for lack of a better word, their modern slang for him. And it's like, she can operate in both of those spaces so seamlessly. Yeah. I mean, and it's something that I think Hawks, sort of continually attributes is that to women is that kind of sneaky ability to transgress these boundaries mm -hmm. he very consciously it is has a self a kind of admirable self-awareness about the sort of inertia of men yeah um and affords women all of the sort of adaptability and ingenuity and the the sort of cleverness that yeah. really holds his male characters back even though we still love his male character and we, but the great thing is we do love his male characters mm -hmm. for those reasons that's why they're lovable it's why his female characters are so lovable and it's why his films work is because he he's sort of mastered that dynamic and can tinker with it between each film you know not to stray too far into his masculine characters but at least in terms of like gary cooper i think it's interesting that the film does really play with his star persona and it gives him the space to like play against type and be this very charming comedian he's not like this stoic himbo mm -hmm. um he yeah. how do you think they work together yeah i think i think they worked really well together like you said he's definitely playing against type and as you were saying that i was thinking about his role in uh design for living which also mm -hmm. against type in a different way he was yeah. playing sort of slightly more sensitive artsy type yeah. Um, where this is a sort of dopey naive, mm -hmm. na dopey naivete. And so, it, it, yeah, it just, it's like, I mean, it has, it happens with the great directors. They really offer the actors way more breadth and freedom to, to kind of challenge themselves and explore, you know, characterizations that they didn't normally get. And I think mm -hmm. it pays off really well in Ball of Fire, not just in his own character in itself, but in the way he's he interacts with like Barbara Stanwyck as well. And I think that sort of speaks to Hawks's approach to comedy. And when I was reading the very good book, um, Hawks on Hawks, the interview with Joseph McBride, and I will um, give the full little biographical description in the um, in the description of this episode. 
Um, but he talks about how it's easier to get comedy if you don't necessarily try to be funny and that characters become funny or situations become funny because of, in his words, their attitudes, because of the attitudes that work against what they're trying to say. So it's very much about like the the tone and the um, sort of clash that he's able to create in these scenarios that that really elevates his his brand of comedy, I think. And that's what makes films like Ball of Fire work so well. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it it works because, yeah, like you said, the tone he sort he he directs films on. I don't know. I don't know how do I say this. He's he takes the scenarios inside the films seriously, mm -hmm. just like the best comedy comes from when, like you said, the actors are aren't consciously trying to be funny. Yeah, it comes from the comedy comes from the truth of the situations and the characters acting in accordance with like what their emotions kind of call for. Mm -hmm. And I th I think that applies to kind of on the the level of plot and narrative as well, mm -hmm. because all of fire isn't it's not a satire really of anything. It's yeah. there are slight caricatures mm -hmm. and they're kind of outrageous characters, but the situation isn't really satirical. It's yeah. not really setting up anything. They're mm -hmm. just odd. And I think yeah. that's why it works so well. I mean, the only thing that really verged on satire, I guess, is maybe gentlemen prefer blondes. Mm -hmm. But it was, but it's also not quite a satire because it is operating in sort of the musical genre, which has its own sort of rules. Yeah, exactly. About like about like the sense of like about heightened, you know, emotion and visuals that yeah. lets it kind of get away with not also not being a full satire. Mm -hmm. That's more of a satire on like gender performance, which is like something we can talk about as as well with with Marilyn and Jane Russell. But um, yeah, but yeah. So, but uh, going back to the yeah, just the 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 sensibility is that the comedy works because yeah, he takes everything as seriously as the kind of the films call for and doesn't push the comedy past what. It needs. We can talk about this film more later, but that's one of the reasons why I don't think a film like I Was a Male War Bride necessarily works for me. And mm -hmm. I had watched it years ago and I didn't really connect with it. And I rewatched it again recently in preparation for this. And I think like there's, it's almost self-aware that it, it's a screwball comedy. Like there's a scene where um, Cary Grant and Ann Sheridan, they're sitting on like their little motorbike and at some point she says, you know, why do we argue so much? You know, I think it's sex antagonism. So you're like calling out the genre yeah. itself and like the trope. So I, I don't know if it got a little gimmicky at that point for me. So it doesn't necessarily work. And I, that's why I like his other films a lot more because they don't really take you out of those um, of the narrative. He plays it very earnestly. Um, and I don't think yeah. the film does that quite as well. Yeah, and I mean... I watched I Was a Male War Bride last night because you had sort of expressed your like disappointment with it upon rewatching it. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I, I'm, I think I like it more than you do. It's mm -hmm. certainly not up there among my favorites. Mm -hmm. I think it sort of, I think it, it has like a sort of late Hawks um, sense of pace, which is extremely slow. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. and I'm like, Oh boy, it's only 1949. He was already sort of exploring this where, and, but it, especially since it's so funny when films like Monkey Business and Gentlemen, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes were just around the corner, which could not be more zippy. Um, so it was just sort of interesting that he was exploring that kind of languid pace mm -hmm. uh, at this point in his career. It seems sort of not in line with 
the majority of kind of what he was interested in. Yeah. So I, I do sort of agree with you on that, on, in that sense. I do still think it's quite a sharp sort of commentary on the absurdity of the sort of strictures of gender performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, especially in the last act where it, it's like couldn't be more like conscious. Um, it's much it's much more subtle at the beginning. Um, and again, I mean, since it's Hawks, he's not like he's not like improvising or guessing and hoping this is it's very intentional that it sort of devolves into this kind of self-conscious confrontation with the gender dynamics that have been sort of bubbling throughout the, you know, the previous hour of the film. Yeah. And so you sort of all come to a head. It works for some people like, and it it works for, it doesn't work for others. I'm sort of in the middle. I don't find it a particularly hilarious film. I never really laughed out loud, even though there were a lot of scenarios that were sort of asking for it. Yeah. Which I, which I sort of agree with. I sort of bristle at him. Like, don't ask me to laugh. Make me laugh. (laughs) And it's interesting too, Um, that it is Cary Grant because I think Hawks described him once as a great receiver and that allowed him to be like the foil to all of these sort of scenarios. And he obviously plays mm-hmm. the gender as well in a film like Bringing a Baby, um, where yeah. his character is sort of like totally emasculated at some at one point. Yeah, that's interesting. I yeah, I mean, in, yeah, I mean, calling him a foil is great because he is much until the end. He is sort of a bit more active and mm-hmm. assertive, and he's not like grumpy. Yeah, <laughs> um, in the film, in a way that is just not quite as enjoyable as the, the sort of manic panic that exudes from uh, <laughs> like bringing a baby. Yeah, um, or even even or even monkey business afterwards. Um, yes. Yeah. So yeah, so I mean, yeah, I was a male war bride, not my favorite. I, it's, it's sort of, it's just sort of an odd feature in the middle of his career that, mm. ha- that takes really closely follows a lot of his previous sort of preoccupations, mm-hmm. and introduces some one some other preoccupations that would become more prominent later in his career. So it yeah. is just sort of a big mixed bag of things that don't all work for me. I agree. As we said last night. We would die for Anne Sheridan. I mean, yeah, Anne Sheridan's amazing. I wish, I mean, I wish she had had a longer career. It's yeah, a, I wish she could have done more, yeah. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen her in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, oh my God, yeah. In that type of more raunchy kind of comedy. I think she would have yeah. excelled so well. Yeah, she could have been, I don't know, she could have been like a really good, like, I don't know, Mrs. Robinson, maybe? Yeah, she would yeah, yeah. certainly be a little bit more age appropriate. Mm-hmm. Still, probably too young, but a little bit more age appropriate. And she could have done something with it because she's so sexy. I mean, she's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah, um, she would have brought that confidence, that like domineering sort of personality that you really need for that character. Definitely, I know it's a, a lot of what ifs with her. Yeah, a lot of what ifs. Who is your ideal screwball heroine, and why? Big question, I know. <laughs> it's a big question, but. I'd have, I mean, it's not original, but it's it's someone like Katherine Hepburn or Barbara Stanwyck in Bringing Up Baby or Ball of Fire. It's mm. like, those are the, those are the, that's the epitome for me. Um, yeah. I would say someone like Carol Lombard in 20th Century, if I connected with the film more, mm-hmm. because I sort of recognize the kind of the brilliance of that film was sort of on an intellectual level. I don't connect to that film emotionally, unfortunately, even after yeah. seeing it on a big screen and I got more from it. Mm-hmm. It's just not quite. The, the brutality of it sort of I can't quite bridge it um yeah 
although she, she and John Barrymore are brilliant. Um, it it is the sort of the the a little bit later when he had really hit his stride with bringing up Baby and Ball of Fire that just like are the epitome because it is those are, I mean with Catherine Hepburn and Barbara Stanwyck you have like two of the kind of the most intelligent skilled actors able to that are able to in other aspects of their career do all kinds of characters genres they they know and are skilled enough to do it all mm-hmm. and somehow it i think it kind of those skills feel most perfectly realized in something like a screwball comedy yeah i don't know i don't know why but it's sort of i get that feeling i emotionally feel that so mm-hmm. it's those two performances that really will will stand the test of time to me and have i think for me my favorite at least my favorite hawks heroine would probably be hildy johnson in his girl friday i think she's like this whirlwind of personality and like she thrives in this male dominated space and yet she's still soft um when she needs to be um i think she's just like perfect blend of like that duality of the of the hawks heroine yeah i mean she's definitely you know third place for me i mean and it's and it's close Mm -hmm. because i did just watch that as well recently um yeah it's so perfect i mean you see such a kind of an interesting among those three films i guess because i think those were the he made other films but i think those are the three screwball he made those three screwballs in a row he didn't have Mm -hmm. many screwball companies in between bringing up baby his girl friday and ball of fire yeah i think they were right in a row in terms of the comedy Mm -hmm. so there is an interesting evolution in terms of like what kind of freedoms the female characters get in there. And I was talking yeah. about the sort of switch in perspective or the, the the kind of the shift in power dynamics that happens when uh, Barbara Stanwyck opens the door to the uh, professor's mansion in yeah. Ball of Fire. Where we're sort of in her camp now. She has the power. Mm-hmm. And in bringing up baby, where the film is only from uh, Cary Grant's perspective. Yeah, Kat Pepper is this just insane, crazy lady yeah. who we'd never get any sort of interiority from her, or any of her motivations. She's just there to cause chaos, chaos agent, the perfect chaos agent, which yeah. is great and it's amazing. But it is like a notable sort of there are there are notable emissions that he rectified in things like. His Girl Friday and Ball of Fire, where they have way more, mm-hmm. way more sort of visible agency. I mean, yeah. In bringing up baby, Catherine Hepburn is not this, this powerless. I mean, she has a lot of power over him. <laughs> we just don't get to explore it really in detail. Whereas yeah. in His Girl Friday and Ball of Fire, we really get to see kind of what's going on in their heads, their real motivations. Um, it just it just adds color and depth to the things that you know, could were potentially going on in something like bringing a baby. Absolutely. Yeah. I think with, with bringing a baby, she, like her character is like this tornado that like comes in and out of, of Carrie Grant's character's his life. And at times she like practically like swallows him whole. She's just so uh, powerful in that way. And it's interesting to see elements of that, as you said, in a character like Hildy. And yet Hildy does have, um, a little more depth and motivation to her her actions. It is interesting to see that evolution now that you sort of put them all together. And it's not as if, I mean, and it's interesting. To, I mean, and it's maybe inaccurate to call it an evolution. It's just because 
it's not like he wouldn't have known how to write a character with kind of interiority yeah in 1930 it's not yeah it's not that Catherine Hepburn doesn't have it because he didn't know how to write it or direct it yeah it was just choices to make and I think that's, that's really interesting because I mean it, it just goes to show like all of the things that he was interested in showing in women yeah um that he can he can do such different things across three films in a span of four years um yeah. While also doing masterpieces in between that are too welcome. <laughs> I know. Well, to that point, I mean, you mentioned when we were discussing um, off mic that you saw a lot of similarities between, was it Ball of Fire and Rio Bravo? Oh, yeah. 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 Do you want to elaborate? Yeah. So what I was thinking about Rio Bravo and Ball of Fire is that mm-hmm. obviously it has like the sort of archetypal or typical hawks scenarios and characterizations so you have like the group of insular men who kind of abide by their own rules um are kind of resistant to influence from outsiders Mm -hmm. Uh, so that was one of the kind of really broad similarities and since rio bravo is like in my top four like favorite all-time movies i think about it all the time (laughs) so that was one of the things um the thing i mentioned to you one of those like the details was the uh the scene in ball of fire where they're at the hotel um, after they've crashed the the car on the way to the get, uh, on the way to the wedding, yeah. and they're sort of waiting and reminiscing like this group of men who have like experienced all of this stuff thanks to this firecracker of a woman, um, and are like sort of reflecting, or at least one of them is reflecting on on life. This the, the only widow in the group, and they start singing a a song whose title is the name of his uh, uh, his wife. And it's just like, it adds nothing to the plot, totally like unnecessary mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. Yet, it, it you couldn't really imagine the film without it. it. It's just like some one of those spontaneous kind of examples of c- camaraderie that really define, yeah. uh, which are, is one of the definitive aspects of Mm-hmm. A Howard Hawks film, whether whether it's a comedy or a you know a drama, is that male camaraderie. Yeah. Um. And and a scene like that happens in, in Rio Bravo, where they're hanging out towards the end. They're hanging out in the jail, and they um are all singing and playing on their guitar. It's just like yeah. one of the, one of the greatest scenes ever. It's beautiful, um, yeah. Because it, yeah, it means nothing really outside of itself. It yeah. it exists for itself. It exists as a representation of their friendship which is what yeah. the film is all about it's just yeah, beautiful it is I, so it's interesting to like yeah. see it in a hawk's screwball comedy see the scene in a screwball comedy that you also see later down the line in like a great western yeah. um the other similarities are obviously if, since we're talking about like the female characters the it's this yeah this kind of woman who comes from the outside who exerts mm-hmm. influence on the like the the stubborn main character male main character Mm -hmm. i think it manifests in quite different ways uh in each film yeah accordance to the time to the the time in which the films were made so in 1941 active women characters were really common it was the time of war leading up to the war so seeing women take on more active roles in society was reflected in, you know, film culture as well. Yeah. So I think that's why it makes sense that Sugar Puss O'Shea is like such a 
active character with interiority. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Rio Bravo, Angie Dickinson's character Feathers is like not quite as active, not quite as um, transparent. Yeah. Her kind of ambitions or her motivations, but she does infl- in, you know exert a lot of influence on John Wayne's character. It's just yeah. it's sort of manifested differently. But uh, like those were, uh, yeah. Long story short, those are the the similarities I was picking up on and responding to. I love yeah, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned the the songs that are both in those films. It's they're honestly so beautiful in their own ways, and it's just a really as you said, it doesn't move the plot forward or anything, but it's sort of a testament to the character dynamics, the male relationships that the film has uh, cultivated. And you you really see that bond uh, between the characters in both scenes. And to the point of like the the parallels of, between Sugarpuss and, and Feathers, I correct me if I'm wrong, does one of the first times that we actually see feathers and we actually hear from her is when she's she opens the door to her room and she talks to john wayne so it's like almost that parallel uh introduction yeah that's yeah that's that's a great yeah that's a great detail i mean yeah and she and she's come on the stage like a different kind of like old uh, the old west version of a taxi so yeah Yeah. that's even more like really detailed i mean of like he has of course has that awareness of what he's done and how he wants to adapt mm-hmm. his previous sort of ideas to new scenarios and that's and that sort of speaks to what i was saying about the 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 repetition of plot and narrative mm-hmm. across his films a lot of it's so similar just in yeah. slightly different shells and in different clothing so yeah so so even down to like the way she arrives to town in a in a stagecoach and the way sugar pusoche arrives at a taxi to these new worlds where they're going to exert a lot of influence and mm-hmm. change our heroes is yeah it's just i mean the sign of you know a great director i think it's it's interesting going back to what we were talking about with uh the t- our, our favorite um screwball heroines um i think for me it's interesting that hawks really gravitated at least in terms of screwball comedy to um, you know, certain types of actresses who then became sort of very synonymous with the genre. Like, for example, you know, with with uh, His Girl Friday, he was originally, he wanted to cast Carol Lombard, uh, but she mm. was too expensive for Columbia. So they offered it then to Claudette Colbert and then Irene Dunn before it went to Rosalind Russell. Um, and even with Ball of Fire, uh, I think both Carol and Ginger Rogers turned down the role and then it eventually went to Barbara Stanwyck. So um to me it's like interesting that he really um zeroed in on actresses with very well-defined like confident screen images and i think that really speaks to uh i guess like the type of personality that he wanted from his characters well yeah i mean i was there's um i like i won't be able to attribute it but there's like and I mean, I'm sure many people have made this observation, but his female characters across all of his films, but I think maybe especially in the comedies, are sort of feminine ideals. Mm-hmm. In that there can be a lot of feminine ideals because he writes a lot of very different female characters, but mm-hmm. they do have qualities that very obviously in the films, like the men are drawn to like a magnet. Yeah. I think having an eye for 
writing those or and being able to direct those kinds of characters, you know, translates to his ability and recognition of those kinds of qualities and actresses. Mm -hmm. Because like all those all those women you named are just are the greatest comedic actresses like of classic Hollywood. I mean, yeah. who like you said all have had like very well defined, but also extremely complex and varied screen identities. So in a sense, like they almost had no identity because they could play so much, which is really what you want because you want someone in a screwball comedy who can, you know, imbue the outrageous moments of comedy with like actual emotional depth. And mm -hmm. and like a Hawks film doesn't exist without that balance. So yeah, yeah. So his his eye for actresses, no matter who actually ended up, you know playing them playing his characters down the line all you know all have that and i think that gets to the point of trying to define genre and um obviously that's I'm, I'm very into you know genre studies but i think it kind of you can only do that to a certain point because um you know screwball heroine is not just like one clearly defined character right these actresses while they have similarities and they certainly overlap in certain aspects. As you said, they all bring different qualities to this to their own screwball heroine. So, you know, a uh, Susan Vance from Bringing a Baby is not the same as a Hildy Johnson or a Lily Garland, right? So it's like I, I always struggle with this with like genre studies. Like, how useful is it to think about? Um, you know, characters, films along such like rigid boundaries. Yeah, that's tough because I guess bringing up baby is like is discussed as one of the epitomes of the screwball comedy genre, and mm -hmm. you know talked about as if it represents them all. Yeah, and it represents a lot of them, and certainly it had a lot of imitators afterwards. Yet at the same time, it was 1938, so there were plenty of screwball comedies before it. Yeah, so it was it was influenced by you know four years of of films like it um already so yeah so like what you're saying about like genre studies is tricky i'm i'm really not like a genre studies expert at all but like genre is all about rules and mm -hmm. if anything like if any genre is meant to be about like rule breaking it it is screwball comedy so it is almost ironic yeah. counterproductive to like try and box it in too much yeah i think one of like one of the qualities like of a screwball comedy that i think is talked about a lot and is because because of the influence of bringing up baby is the idea of a woman kind of inflicting chaos on like a man's life. Mm -hmm. And while it's like, you know, depicted to like perfect effect and bringing up baby, as we were just talking about earlier in his, in Hawks's next two screwball comedies, that's really not the case. Exactly. Yeah. Certainly, the case, certainly is not the case in his girl Friday. Yeah. So it, it is so, sort of the case to ball of fire, but to a much lesser extent, I think. Yeah. If anything, for a for like a more prolonged period, Sugar Puss O'Shea brings I don't know actual like balance to Gary Cooper's life. Ironically. Yeah. In a sort of in a sort of weird way, she does sort of make his life more normal. Mm -hmm. Um. Until like you know the antics you know amp up a little bit towards the end. Yeah. Whereas in Bringing Up Baby, it's just pure chaos from beginning until, you know, five seconds from the end when, you know, they kiss. So it yeah. is, so it is just like, it's so, it's so tricky. And, so, and I think kind of 
to an extent counterproductive to like try and apply too much rule too many rules to screwball comedy because yeah. it is it is a honor about breaking rules it's Absolutely. about yeah it's about like breaking rules of gender rules of class rules of you know you know respectability and decency mm -hmm. and you know everything so yeah, yeah just, just let it let it fly free <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah no i mean the battle of the sexes trope that really bringing a baby really sort of um exemplifies so well i mean it it does speak to that clash of you know different sensibilities and um modes of expression that you do get in screwball um and yeah. i think i mean going back to sort of like the problems with you know narrow definitions i mean the the hoxian woman is a a trope i guess that people identified in, yeah. the, in the 70s i think it was um I think it was Naomi Wolf, oh, yeah. Naomi Wise. Oh, really? Um, okay. and, I assumed it would be like Molly Robin Haskell Wood. or something. Pardon? I assumed it would be like Molly Haskell or something. But Robin Wood makes sense as well. Yeah. And I think that that concept has transcended, you know, our culture to a certain extent. Um, yeah. Do you think it's possible to sort of identify one type of Hoxian woman? Do you think that's like a productive way to think about his heroines? Um, I think in, in a similar way to like, what's the use of applying like generic rules to screwball comedy, I think maybe it can work to an extent. Mm -hmm. I think there are real fundamental basics to female characters in Howard Hawks comedies. I say that instead of saying Hawksian women, <laughs> there are these sort of fundamental basics to those characters that probably translate and kind of apply kind of across the board. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of things like just a sense of self and yeah. a sense of consciousness that allows them to navigate whatever situation comes their way without really batting an eye. After that, there's like a, a billion different kind of directions that can go. Yeah. So it really has to just stick to the fundamentals. But I guess those like those kind of fundamentals are the most interesting because that's about character instead of about plot. Yeah. So like I guess the Hoxian woman from everything from uh Lorelai Lee to Sugar Pasoche to Hilda Johnson to Feathers, even though that's not a screwball comedy, the Hoxian woman does have that sense of self and a self-confidence <laughs> to, you know, stand up to John Wayne. <laughs> in a western or you know tell Cary Grant to kind of go screw himself we're not married anymore um <laughs> or to play up a kind of outrageous female sexuality that in any other hands would have just been really destructive but in Marilyn Monroe's hands only made her a more like charming yeah and be scored her actual talent as an actor yeah, I like to think of it that way, too. It's sort of like these very um, core but still loosely defined characteristics that you can use as a jumping off point. And I, I think that is, for me, like a productive way to think about genre because screwball comedy, it can be like bringing up, bringing up baby, but there are so many screwball comedies that are completely different from that film. So um, I think that sort of speaks to like the malleability of, of genre and I guess to to the Hoxian character type. Are there any actresses who you think would have really excelled in a Howard Hawks screwball, screwball comedy that never got to be in one? And I'm thinking oh, of yeah. so, someone 
less obvious. So like not really like a Claudette Colbert or or an Irene Dunn who we know are like it, they would obviously have excelled if they had like yeah. done one of those roles. I think. Is, but is there anyone maybe sort of less obvious that you think could have done mm. really well? I have one answer, but I want to hear yours. If um, you can come up with one. I think if we're gonna stick with like a sort of a very confident um, character, or sorry, a confident sort of persona, I would go with Myrna Loy, and I think that would be such a. I don't know how she would fit in the, the sort of like Hawks male dominated mm. male oriented world but um i think she could have pulled off a type of uh hawks heroine in a very interesting way she's very different from you know rosalind russell and irene dunn yeah. lombard but i think there are uh certain elements in her her screen persona that could translate given the right story how about you mine would be maureen o'hara Oh, yes. I think of because I think of her going back to the that idea of the the, the female ideal. Mm -hmm. She played the John Ford female ideal many yeah. times, and I and I think of like there's her role in the Long Gray Line. I think it was like 1955. Is so interesting because mm -hmm. on the surface it is like the an eye rolling wife type, mm -hmm. but in the sense that she's the kind of an, another kind of female character that exerts a lot of just subtle influence on the male hero. Yeah. It's something that I think could translate really well to a Hawks movie mm -hmm. where she probably would have been given a little bit more interiority, a little bit more sort of, I don't know, like age, a little bit more agency that was, you know, made legible. Yeah. Um, and I think she could have really excelled in that. Like there's, and there's, the 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 meet cute between her uh, her and Tyrone Power in the Long Grey Line is just like perfect like screwball comedy fodder like pratfalls and just like awkward glances and like think like it's it really good stuff and like so yeah. I think she's done really well in she's not the right age but if she had been the right age maybe she could have done really well in a um like monkey business where she could have mm, yeah a sort of mature middle aged wife. And been able to really just like kind of get down and dirty as like a adult with the mind of a child um, yeah. later in the film. I think she like really excelled in something like that. Uh, that's a good answer, actually. Yeah, I would have never considered her, but you know, she had such uh, a vibrant, witty uh, presence on screen, so I could definitely see her in that. Yeah, it's a really good answer. What do you think about now, now that we're sort of down that road? Someone like a it's interesting. Someone like a Jean Arthur, obviously she was in Only Angels Have Wings, but I don't know if I could have seen her in a Hawks screwball comedy. Yeah, that's hard because she's like, and it's I think it's easy to forget that she was like born in 1900. <laughs> yeah. So she, I mean, she was doing her best work, or at least her most famous work when she was in her 40s, essentially. Exactly. Which is so crazy because she has such like a, of a young, bubbly personality, mm -hmm. and I and I sort of you, the same way, same thing with Irene Dunn, who's even older, eighteen ninety seven or eighteen ninety eight or something. Yeah, who was playing like young wives at forty, crazy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it is sort of hard. So like, I think she could have like played aspects of Sugar Puss O'Shea really well. I think mm -hmm. she would have really excelled in um, His Girl Friday. 
Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I mean, some of her characters are very similar already. I think so. she could have really settled in that. I think, I mean, there would be like necessary tweaks or something, but yeah. I think in that kind of scenario with a character that sort of headstrong mm -hmm. could have done really well. And I think there are aspects of like Sugar Puss O'Shea she could have done. I can't see her dancing in like a midriff, you know, like sparkly dress at a nightclub, mm -hmm. but I can't see her sort of spouting off slang, you know, like like a Spitfire yeah. um, like Gary Cooper into like a, a tizzy. So there are, yeah. there are sort of aspects. Yeah, I could definitely, yeah, I could see her um, definitely in His Girl Friday for sure. Yeah, that, um, I don't know. She plays like incredulous very well. And I think she could have yeah. brought that to a Hildy character um, in a very unique way. And it's, it's why she excelled in like the more the merrier so well. Because yeah. she's being like, like, this young woman who's just like being put upon by like Joel McRae and Miles Coburn in the more the merrier. Yeah. Yeah. Like being put upon by these like dudes and, and she plays that so well, like sort of, sort of this just like, uh, wh wh what's <laughs> happening? Like, what, yeah. Those, that kind of thing is she, and she just runs with it. Yeah. Exactly. The first true like Hoxian screwball heroine is of course Lily Garland, but I think you can sort of identify elements of um that type of strong heroine in some of his earlier films but um how do you think the hawks like comedy heroine evolved over time and do you notice sort of a difference between like i know we talked about this a little bit before but like the 30s 40s heroines and those from you know the 50s and 60s yeah i'm less familiar with uh hawks's stuff like post rio bravo mm. I'm almost like, and I only, I watched Man's Favorite Sport for the first time <laughs> a couple of days ago. Yeah. Um, I think, I don't know. I think maybe I've just been like subconsciously afraid to like watch anything that he made after Rio Bravo because it is the pinnacle for me. Yeah. But, <laughs> and I mean, after watching Man's Favorite Sport, I'm like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have <laughs> ventured. <laughs> um, wasn't my favorite. Um, but I, I, at least from what I could glean from that and aspects of, his films from like the fifties, excluding gentlemen prefer blondes because that's sort of like an anomaly sort of outlier in a mm -hmm. sense. But I think he does, he sort of, I mean, he evolves with the times for good and for bad. I mean, his forties characters are just so self-possessed and active mm -hmm. and vibrant his characters, his female characters from the fifties and into the sixties, like with man's favorite sport are just much more deferential, um, yeah. less, complex um mm. they have that tendency to uh, like trick you at the beginning by being really vibrant and present and then sort yeah. of fading away and i and i think that's just it goes with you know that he was moving with the times mm -hmm. like any good director does and still being able to make like really successful um effective films along the way but yeah. they do i mean just judging by like what you personally respond to they, they're going to either be more or less, you know, effective for you. And in my case, I think they're a little bit less effective. I think what the reason, like, something like Monkey Business works is, A, that it's still sort of early. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's in his 50s by then, but it was yeah. sort of early enough. Yeah. It had, like, sort of the... the it had the, you know, the sensibility of a 19, late 40s comedy still on it. Yeah. Um, why it works. And because it is so de deliberately childish, it is... That is the text of the the film is 
childishness. Yeah. So that's it. Sort of it. Sort of um, overcomes some of the less I don't know interesting conservatisms about the film, which is like the overly deferential housewife and mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah, I think yeah. business is sort of like the successor in a way to something like a bringing a baby and that it still maintains that playfulness um mm -hmm. and that that kooky aspect but it in a more i don't know like a 50 sensibility for lack of a better description. Well, i mean exactly i think that's a perfectly valid description i mean for people who like study classic hollywood the 50 sensibility is kind of recognizable like there are things i mean it's the you know it's the the cold war and communism and like the crisis of masculinity a crisis of fatherhood um yeah those things are you know at some of those things are at work in monkey business mm -hmm. um so it definitely has those those trademarks they are overcome to an extent by the fact that the film is explicitly about being childish whereas yeah. bringing up baby just is childish exactly and that's and that's hawks like you know being just like a really smart self-confident director mm -hmm. knowing himself mm -hmm. and you know actively grappling with like the changes that life brings yeah and doing so to like great effect because i mean he's like like we've been like touching on before recycling a lot of ideas in but you know transforming them so he has the sort of nerdy professor played by Cary Grant again yet yeah. this time he's lost his verve and his lust for life because mm -hmm. he's aging and not because he's like a bachelor so dedicated to his work mm -hmm. it's so it's like a subtle shift that reflects the his Hawks's own you know shifts in life in the, you know the the intervening 14 or 13 years his character is very much tied still to his like domestic milieu and to me, it's interesting, yeah. like the first time Ginger Rogers character sort of really is overcome by the the serum is like when she, it's like a private moment just between the two of them. I think they're like at an elevator or something or at like a door. But it's interesting that it like happens in this private space, whereas in yeah. bringing a baby, it's like the world is is just like that. Yeah, exactly. And it's also yeah, and it's it's playing. I mean, that it's a, such a smart you know i guess like i don't know sort of plot conceit on the part of the film because the 50s were such a conservative decade mm -hmm. and it's like literally plot points throughout that this you know formula makes people feel like they're young again and yeah. what happens when you feel like you're really young again you're really horny <laughs> yeah so like it, it it's like deliberately just like confronting like the conservatism of you know the era, the the emerging yeah. post-war conservatism of the era, mm -hmm. really head on and saying, you know what, like we're gonna you know like s say the quiet part out loud, like we're gonna really lean into like the you know into sexuality and to, and playfulness and youth, mm -hmm. confront you with the fact that like you can't be satisfied by it because you know we're in a society that like frowns upon it. It has its own sort of cons like conservative downsides that it doesn't really quite grapple with, yeah. because it's just you know, a conservative. Howard Hawks was a conservative guy making yeah. films in a conservative era, so there are things that just aren't going to go, you know, unconfronted. Mm -hmm. But 
he was certainly, you know, so aware of like what's going on in the world and how he can, as a filmmaker, can poke fun at it and subvert it. Absolutely. And, and, and think... draw the audience's attention to it as well. Absolutely. And I think we'll talk about Gentleman for Blondes in a bit, but I think it's interesting that the casting choice of Marilyn Monroe in Monkey Business, because you are, she does embody that cultural nervousness or uneasiness with overt sexuality in this era where people are so chaste and like conservative. And, and I mean, and if we want to like get into it now, but like the difference between those two films is like so effective because it's like, look what kind of film can come out of this kind of scenario of that explores female sexuality so overtly. Mm -hmm. Look what can, can come out of it when the actor portraying it Mm -hmm. is given more latitude to contribute to it as an actor. Yeah. So what look what happens when she's put uh, in the in the leading position. Yeah. When instead of as a sort of piece of eye candy on the side, like and look what look what can happen when she's as an actor is given the freedom and the confidence to actually take charge of her emerging sort of notoriety as a public mm -hmm. figure, take take a hold of it and do something subversive with it. Yeah. It's in in collaboration with a director who was very obviously aware of it and wanting to do something with it as well. Um yeah. So that that's that's a it's that's such a great it's so cool that we have those two films back to back and those mm -hmm. two performances back to back because they are a great example of you know, just the the power and the importance of, I mean, with limits, of course, because of the time, but like the, the importance of an actor being able to take some ownership over their image and, mm -hmm. you know, use it and wield it against expectations, I think. I think Marilyn was from her generation of, you know, Hollywood actresses. I think she was one of the smartest performers and she knew oh, yeah. exactly how to wield her her public image and her sexuality. Um, and she was always so in control of of the of her characters and of her of her screen persona. I think to she was in on the joke, right? Like the dumb blonde. She's she's playing along with yeah. us, right? Exactly. Um, and it's interesting to see her type of femininity be portrayed along some alongside someone like a, a Jane Russell who it's a little bit, you know, older than her. She sort of started off in the 40s and she had that, you know, Howard Hughes um, sex bomb sort of persona. And to put these two women together, and I think they really um, sort of embody that duality of, you know, 50s femininity. Yeah, if anything, Jane Russell almost had a greater hurdle to overcome than Marilyn, at least at that time, mm -hmm. because she had been around longer, her sort yeah. of her reputation, well, not even a reputation, but her perception as a pinup uh, beauty was a little bit more entrenched. And like from 1943, when um, the Howard Hughes movie, I can't even, the, can't even remember what it's the called. Outlaw? The Outlaw, right. Yeah. When when that was made it wasn't released i think for like at least three years so there was just three years of pure publicity and publicity mm -hmm. only that yeah. was painting her as this just sex object yeah um so yeah she almost she, she almost had like an even more kind of entrenched 
image to get over, which yeah. is also why it's like, smart that she was given like the the more grounded character mm -hmm. um, that she could obviously more than handle as an actor um, yeah. and could really, I think, at least the sense I get from the performance is that she was just like really taking it like with two hands and like really enjoying being able to play with it. Yeah. Because I mean, yeah, she's like, I mean, and talk about the idea of like the feminine ideals. I think it's probably the most perfectly expressed in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Mm -hmm. You have two perfect feminine ideals of this era in this film portrayed by people who are in on the joke of femininity and are in on the process of sort of subverting it. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it, it's why it makes, it's it's what makes the film so rich and enjoyable each time is because you can see the layers of that happening. Absolutely. Like the knowing, to me, it's like the, I think it arguably maybe like the greatest American film for me, at least. I don't know. I think it's just so good, but. It's, it's up there. Yeah. <laughs> like the knowingness of, their characters but also the story as a whole as you said it does contribute to the to the layers of it and i think that's interesting about gentlemen for blondes too it is in a way that may be lacking in other hawks films is that you it is very much also about like their relationships to their relationship together these two women um they are these overwhelming forces in this film all of the men are so weak-willed and like unremarkable um yeah like her uh Lorelai's initial bow. I, yeah. You could just yeah, <laughs> you could cast anybody in those uh in those parts really, uh, because it's not so much about them as like the the camaraderie between these two women. Yeah, I mean it's that idea of camaraderie that he had that Hawks had made his career on men is now effectively translated onto like a female friendship yeah. so beautifully. I mean, mm -hmm. I think it remains greatest female friendships like on screen um, absolutely these are just sort of foundational ideas of like how of hawks movies are so mutable and so adaptable to any kind of situation and that he was willing and able to take them in all the directions that they could handle mm -hmm. is testament to to you know him as a director yeah you know throughout his career yeah for me what's also fun about this film is that that hyper you don't see that hyper masculinity with the characters that you know like the supporting characters their husbands piggy whoever whomever but it is still on yeah. display in that the jane russell's song is there anyone here for love where she's dancing around the pool with all those like beefy men and it's like choreographed by a gay man as well exactly uh, it's such a good, a good number it's so good i mean I, sh I showed, I, I I mean, I didn't have to rewatch Gentlemen Prefer Blondes in preparation for this, but I did recently mm -hmm. just because I was, I was hanging out with my sister and we were just like thinking of things to watch. And I was like, oh God, what's something funny? And it was in, because it's on the Criterion channel in mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the in the Marilyn Monroe collection. Yeah. Um, so I was like, oh my God, she'll get a kick out of this. Like at least for just like the colors and the, the scene at the, at the pool. <laughs> so that's what. Yeah, so we rewatched re it like that, and she, yeah, she was like getting up. She was her like her, her jaw was on the floor, just like, what is happening? It was so funny when she starts um walking down towards the end of the song when she has the little tennis rackets and she's rackets, like, yeah, yeah she uh, lost it. It's so funny. Yeah, and she falls in the pool, and it's like you can. It, oh yeah, she, yeah, she she looks like she's having fun, and that's like what you want in a musical number, right? I mean, 
you don't want anything else. And actually, I don't know. I mean, I feel like probably a lot of people know this, but so I don't know how well known it is. But the um, the guy that Jane Russell, um, Dirk, his bicep frames her face. Mm -hmm. Oh, he's like curling. He's yeah. like a sort of not infamous, but he's like a he did gay porn. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. He's he he's in the he's in a lot of like the muscle the like the gay muscle magazines of la from that period like the, the late the 50s into the early 60s like he's he's a fixture in them oh my god i can't remember his name but i i i there was um there was a uh there's a book i came across kind of about just like early like gay like muscle fitness magazines that had his picture and i was like oh my oh my god that's that's the guy. <laughs> That's the guy from General for Blonde. So one wonders how many of those men were like <laughs> That's... plucked from the from the, the sets of those uh you know magazine photo shoots for 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 this. That's funny. Oh my god, I didn't I didn't know that. That's <laughs> that's good. That's good casting. But uh, or or one wonders, I mean, the choreographer was gay. One wonders yeah. if that choreographer maybe knew him or knew of him um, yeah. and had a hand <laughs> in some of that. <laughs> yeah. uh, that cast thing. <laughs> That's funny. I mean, obviously, Dumb for Blondes and Screwball Comedy are, are doing two different things. But for me, it's interesting to go from that movie to which we, one we referenced earlier, which is Man's Favorite Sport, because I think when I watched it for, for the first time, and I like it overall, or parts of it, at least, I think it's charming, but I expected it to be more, I don't know, sexy. I think it starts off with a lot of promise and then it sort of like plummets very quickly into something very sterile and sort of lacking that chemistry. Yeah, it, it ran into the issue of um, where where Hawks is often very effective in referencing himself mm -hmm. and doing something different with his references. Mm -hmm. I don't think he was doing anything very interesting with his references in man's favorite sport. It felt like a, it felt like rehashing instead of recycling. Yeah. Like the, the opening gag in the car was the same as bringing up baby and the, and even to the, the, like it was almost, I mean, not quite a MacGuffin, but like the bone in bringing up baby is very similar to like learning how to catch a fish in man's yeah. favorite sport. It's just like these sort of quite simple symbols mm -hmm. and, sort of cliches and ideas that I don't think were, I don't think any, enough was done to them to make yeah. it worthwhile for this film. Yeah. And it also has the late Hawksian slowness. <laughs> it's the, <laughs> That's it's for sure. One of the longest two hour movies I've ever seen. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was definitely a pretty big disappointment to me. Also, mm -hmm. I don't think Rock Hudson belongs in no. a Howard Hawks movie. It just was not working. And no. Paula Prentice is char charming, but she doesn't have, I wasn't getting, I mean, and it is again, a, so maybe an unfair comparison, mm -hmm. but she didn't have the, the, the sort of, you know, the complimentary depth that I can feel, even though it's not really, you know, legible mm -hmm. or explained, but that depth that I can feel in someone like Angie Dickinson in yeah. Real Bravo. It's just, it's, it's just sort of, Especially for actresses of this that same age at that time, like they were both in their early twenties, it's just like yeah. uh, it's just a little unfortunate. Even though you know she's pleasant and like funny, and you can see like extremely capable, but it was just not working. 
not working. I agree. And it's interesting when I was um, looking up in the Hawks on Hawks book and Hawks's um, thoughts about this film, he said that he actually wanted Cary Grant first. Uh, but Cary Grant allegedly said, I don't want to make a movie with young girls. Um, so he uh, turned down the role. And then Good they. Good on you, Cary. Good on you. <laughs> settled... <laughs> so they settled on Hudson. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, I think Cary Grant would have certainly been better, but I don't know if he would have necessarily saved the film. I think it it's not a. The casting wasn't my main problem with it, I don't think. I don't think Rock Hudson is necessarily a good comedian in that sort of vein. I think he works well with like a Doris Day and those kinds of like yeah, yeah, sex comedies, yeah. but that's not what this film was trying to do. So yeah. I don't know. And for Paula Prentice, I agree. There's, I think she's maybe of her generation, a good iteration of like the, she's like a 60s version of a Hawks sort of screwball heroine. Um, but I think she sort of, I don't know, she lacks like that nervous energy that you get from like the 30s actresses. And I think that's like so essential for this genre. I think she's like too smart and like too self-assured to really pull off that type of character. Yeah, there was also, I mean, at least in terms of the character, there was nothing going on in the character's life. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean... I think a lot of that, a lot of this, you know, the successful dynamics of the kind of the late 30s, early 40s mm -hmm. heroines in Hawks' films comes in part from something happening in their lives. Yeah. Some kind of upheaval. She was, I mean, Paula Prentice was just like, I don't know, a successful PR woman <laughs> for this lodge. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing really was happening, happening to her. Yeah. And I think I think that ultimately contributes. I like, and I it just kind of occurred to me just now. But I think that's what's contributing to not like the success or failure of the movie, but just kind of like the effectiveness of the dynamics mm -hmm. going on. Yeah, um, which in turn contributes to the success of the film. But yeah, so I, it's it's I not agree. the root cause, but it is one of like it's like uh, that's something that's you know really contributing. Yeah, for me, I think it was like just an indifference to everything. Like I. I just left the film being like, okay, so what? Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Did I just watch for two hours? There are moments of it that I think are great. Like I posted on Twitter, the scene with the bear. I think that's like yeah. really dumb Ridiculous. and fun. <laughs> like it's yeah. not enough to sustain my interest for like two, two plus hours. Two long hours. Two long yeah. hours. I think, I mean, and poor Rock Hudson. All of his films seem to run into this, but it was more of a great sort of commentary on closeted gay actor Rock Hudson. The the film speaking to that aspect of his life than it being an actual <laughs> yeah. like. I was like, oh, it's a man who doesn't know how to uh, handle his rod around <laughs> women. Yeah, self confident. He's uh, self conscious about it. Rather, quite problematically, the you know the reference to all the fish and not knowing what to do with it. Yeah, being sort of subtly related to like female sexuality. I was like, well, that's gross. But um, yeah. that it was the times that's what they were sort of going for. I was like, oh, it's just so it's another, <laughs> we can, you know, cut clips out of this. And it's like, this is why Rock, this is Rock Hudson, the gay actor, yeah. you know, films subliminally or accidentally speaking to his sexuality without trying to. Um, yeah, it's very meta in that way. It's, it's interesting yeah. to watch it through that lens for sure. There's a, been a lot of like feminist readings of his 
of his films, but it's interesting to think about that in terms of like Cox's own politics. And I know he very definitively said like, I don't believe in women's lib. I've denied it. And it just happens to be like the kind of woman I'm attracted to. Um, but like, how do you, obviously I'm not like necessarily an expert on Hawks's politics, um, but like, how do you think you could reconcile like his gender politics or lack thereof with, um, I guess like the evolving cultural climate that he was working in and the types of like, images of strong femininity that are so pervasive in his films. Yeah, it's one of those things that I actually, I think we might have actually talked about it last time, is like, more generally, how does, you know, someone like, how do someone like, how do people like you and I who identify as feminists and mm -hmm. are feminists yeah. reconcile our love for classic Hollywood in general? Yeah. Which suffers from the, you know, the inequities and the, of it of the times in which they were it was made like the racism the sexism the the homophobia the whatever you like call it mm -hmm. the exorbitant capitalism like so it, it is sort of one of those fundamental questions i think at least for me the way i do it is like a couple ways actually it's like for me i don't really care what the filmmaker thinks yeah you know in a in a in a, in a way i don't care what the filmmaker thinks mm-hmm because the film is for me. I'm watching yeah. it. Yeah. And I think that's, it maybe sounds like reductive or too simplistic, but the film is for you. You're watching it yeah. for yourself. The, the the director's beliefs or politics don't have to play a part in the way you're reading a film. You can read yeah. the film for itself. Mm -hmm. And certainly bring, there are so many, and there, but there are great, obviously, opportunities to bring in a director's politics mm -hmm. um, outside of the film into your reading of the film. There are great yeah. academic possibilities for that. And obviously books and courses and are built upon that. Yeah. So I'm not like denouncing that and I do it too, but there is a, I don't know, a pleasure in being able to, you know, with the, you know, with the, the passage of time to be able to sort of give yourself permission to just detach it from it. Mm -hmm. Because it's such, it's just it's about pleasure. Yeah. Especially these these screwball comedies, it's about the pleasure of enjoying it mm -hmm. and letting the films speak for themselves and yeah. speak to you. Uh, so that I guess that's how I approached it. I mean, obviously, like it's part of the reason why something like 20th century doesn't quite connect with me mm -hmm. as much as something like Ball of Fire or His Girl Friday. Yeah. It's because it's a bit brutal to <laughs> yeah. Carol Lombard, who I love and want to see not being stabbed with a needle. But that's just what the that's just what's happening in the film. And yeah. the film does a good a good enough job to let you know like that like obviously we're not condoning the stabbing with the needle. It's mm -hmm. this gross tactic by this man. It's at least for me, it doesn't make it fully comfortable watching. Yeah. But it's just like one of the realities of just like watching films like this mm -hmm. and being able to accept that, it, you know, that's just sort of how the, the way things were working and being yeah. able to sort of get over that and take the pleasure in things that are there to really give you pleasure, which is her the like transcendent performance and yeah. her ability to sustain like the mad energy that she does throughout the film. Um, so it's things like that, that just that those are my like that's how I navigate it all. I'm there with you too. And I think, you know, like you, I think it's impossible not to sort of 
take into account the broader politics of of the era. But at some point, I think, I don't know if it's a just something that happens on like social media or like of something of our, our day that we live in. But I think you can almost drive yourself crazy when you focus too much on like everyone's politics and sort of having to evaluate a work of art against someone's belief system. And I, I mean, I don't expect Howard Hawks, someone from, you know, a different century to have the same, you know, ideology as me. So I think, yeah. you know, you have to be able to separate yourself from that and just as you said enjoy a film for what it is um and also like do i even want late howard hawks attempting like g genuinely attempting to make a feminist film exactly like if he was coming yeah. out from like he did believe in women's lib and was like for it do i even then do i still want to see that film from him no yeah. I, do, I don't i don't want to see that film from him yeah but so it is just sort of like it's one of those things where like I try to avoid criticizing films for things that they were never attempting in the first place. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. So like, yeah. I'm not going to like get all beat up over the fact that 20th century isn't feminist enough for me. Yeah. Because he wasn't trying to do that in the first place. If he yeah, had, exactly. if there was like publicity material from 1934 where mm -hmm. Hawks was like I'm I'm attempting to make a, a feminist movie and I saw it and I thought it failed at that then that's that's then I feel like that is worth criticizing yeah but it's just like we're not getting anywhere by like it, it's just a dead end you're you're kind of running yourself in circles by doing that I think absolutely it's it's impossible to apply our you know modern cultural sensibilities or our politics whatever they may be to something from, you know, 90 years ago. It's, and it's, if it's not attempting to do that, as you say, in the first place, he's not, these films are feminist and we can interpret them in, in you know, according to those politics, but that's not what he was trying to do in yeah. making yeah. those films. Right. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's the films are for you. They're for you exactly. to interpret. And I mean, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's really useful to a, to apply the polit our politics of today to films of the past to put them in context. Yeah. It's like, I, mean, I, I think that's essential, actually. I think you're, it's irresponsible not to. Yeah. But to, I don't know, to apply value judgment to them along those lines is mm -hmm. go for it. But what do you do? Like, you're not really accomplishing anything. And no. I think you're just depriving yourself of the, of joy. <laughs> I agree. I mean, I, I think you're going to make yourself miserable if you do that. You're well, always I mean, going to run into really, like a... You really are. Yeah. You really are. Yeah. But I think that comes with... I think that comes on sort of everyone's sort of journey with classic Hollywood is that... Yeah. If you're coming at it from like, you haven't watched any, really any old movies and you're like a, a strong feminist and you're like, oh God, but it's just all going to be sexist and I'm not going to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, that that's a valid concern, of course. Yeah. But you learn you learn to sort of navigate the contours of the filmmaking style and the ideas. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you you know, you do and if you enjoy some of the films, you do some reading. It's like it's all about your own journey and Absolutely. learning how to, you know, put yourself in them. Before we wrap up, do you um see Hawks' influence on modern comedies? Or do you think he's very much mm -hmm. 
like can't be replicated? Well, I mean, the most obvious influences on uh, Peter Bogdanovich and What's Up yes. Doc. Yes. Which is, I mean, God, so cringe. I call it a modern comedy. It's 51 years old. Um, <laughs> but um, but it, I mean, it also speaks to his, Bogdanovich's ability to like, you know, make a timeless piece of art is that that yeah. still feels so current. Um, but yes, yeah, so like that's that's probably the most obvious. I think there's you see some uh, influence in like Mistress America, comeback mm -hmm. um, comedies, but um, I don't know. It's it's really it's really hard. It's it's I think it's really hard to sort of replicate that kind of comedic sensibility today. Yeah, because it's built on a kind of conflict that. I think today people are were just not as comfortable broaching mm -hmm. because I mean it can sometimes verge on brutality in in yeah. like the screwball comics. They were kind of brutal to each other. There's exactly. like you know there's there's physical stuff. There's mm -hmm. you know mental like just like yeah. torment. Yeah, and I don't I don't know if we're willing or able to depict today uh or try to or or we're willing or able to try to adapt to today yeah um oh so yeah that's that's why it's it's quite hard but i mean something like the idea of like one of the like this that tenant of the of a character sort of inflicting some sort of like chaos upon another character i think can still work and it, and it works in something like mistress america mm -hmm. and th uh, so i think that's probably the, the strongest sort of representative of that kind of uh, comedic sensibility from like the modern day. Well, yeah. What about you? Do, do things come to mind for you? Um, I agree with you. I think that that battle of the sexist trope, it does, it's a very, it's like a um, paper thin line between humor and brutality, as you mentioned. So I don't know. I think going to back, back to what we were saying before, I don't know if as a, culturally as a whole people are willing to accept that type of comedy now especially from like maybe like a modern filmmaker um i honestly think i mean i think with bogdanovich he is de definitely he's a unique uh example because he's very much like us like a cinephile and he he loves classical hollywood and he was i think setting out to like make an homage to bringing a baby right. of course, um of course, yeah and so i think i mean i even like some of his later screwball comedies as well like she's funny that yeah. way um i know yeah. Squirrel to the nuts is making its rounds on different theaters i got to see it yeah. how was it yeah yeah i got to see the you know the the lost director's cut of mm -hmm. yeah squirrels to the nuts um it's not my favorite but <laughs> Because it is, oh, I mean, I, we don't have to get into it, but I mean, it, it, there are so many great things about it. It's mm -hmm. like visually such a pleasure to actually watch a film made in, what was it, 2014? I think so, yeah. Yeah, a film like made in 2014 that is like, oh my God, a take that lasts, a shot that lasts more than five seconds. <laughs> it, there, wait, there's like choreography within the frame for planning the blocking so that we can like sustain emotion in the shot. Whoa, that's crazy. And it was just insane to like, see this just level of just like formal, I don't know, rigor 
mm-hmm. and a, a sort of like studio comedy that yeah. under pretty much any other circumstance would just like not require or ask for it mm-hmm. um so that was those were the, the greatest pleasures um mm-hmm. i think the performances are kind of excruciating oh. i don't unfortunately mm-hmm. i don't know if it was like a like a direction thing or uh just or like a character thing but like something was just not clicking in the performances Ugh. i mean he brought back uh oh my god his his like ex-girlfriend the young uh not sybil shepherd yeah he brought yeah sybil shepherd was in it oh wow atrocious performance uh (laughs) oh no like it's it's a super small supporting character but she shows up in like four scenes oh it's shocking it's shockingly bad oh my god um yeah so it was the performances that let the the film down and the sort of a a sort of unfortunately sentimental ending Mm. even for a director's cut which which i thought might um kind of lead that Mm. um so but overall, like just like thrilled, I got to see it. It's just like yeah. kind of it's such a it was like a pleasure to like actually see the, a late great director's kind of like final work in the the form it was meant to be, even if it was a slight letdown. Yeah. But um, so I hope it can like I make its way around more places. But, I know um, I'd love to see it. Yeah, thousand percent worth seeing. One thousand percent worth seeing. I want to see it. I know. I like. I love Bogdanovich in, in general, and I think yeah, it's it's so refreshing to see someone, as you said, have like intention and um, thought. Oh my God, it's, it's a film made by a filmmaker. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> crazy yeah. concept, right? <laughs> yeah, and actually going back to some of like maybe the modern examples of like screwball comedy influence, I, I actually I just thought of Licorice Pizza. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think, which I think, which I, which I think employs a lot of the, you know, the gender dynamics, um, yes. especially in a, a film set in a time that is explicitly about, you know, shifting gender norms. Yeah. Gender dynamics. Yeah. I mean, it's like in the seventies, you have this young woman trying to like re- realize herself. Um, is she immature? Is she not doing anything with her life? Yeah. What should she be doing as a young woman with her life? And what's sort of standing in her way? Oh, it's this teenage, immature teenage boy who's sort of standing in her way yeah. of doing that. She's also drawn to him because he's really funny and really yeah. charming. Has his own sort of kooky ambitions that you can't help but sort of be drawn to. So it is that that's I think that those are some of the sort of sensibilities that uh, PTA has brought in. And obviously, who's someone who's going to be intimately like aware and knowledgeable about you know that kind of hollywood history as well absolutely like bogdanovich he brings in that he's he knows what he's doing he knows knows the the sort of generations before him and he understands like where he fits into that definitely that's a good example actually um anyway thank you so much chris for joining me again i love talking to you this is so much fun thank you for having me it was such a pleasure um and i was uh glad to uh provide my inexpert uh, opinions but uh by a love of watching <laughs> exactly um and if um viewers want to find you where 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 are you like uh, social media or wherever yeah you can find me on the crumbling dust dumpster fire that is twitter at the moment um yeah. uh my my handle is uh at c Cassingham, so just c the first initial of my first name and then my full last name 
um, which will, I guess, be spelled out somewhere in the description. Um, yeah. um, and from there, you can, like, I have links to some of my, my writing and some of my work as a programmer. You can send me an email if you feel like it. Honestly, that's more effective than Twitter at this point. Um, <laughs> my So my email is there. But, um, yeah, if you're a, I don't know, if you're a filmmaker who makes micro-budget uh, films from the States, I'm your uh, expert programmer working yeah. on some... Uh, working on some projects in that vein at the moment. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. That concludes this episode of The Screwball Story. The Screwball Story was researched, written, and recorded by me, Olympia Kiriakou. All of the resources used for this episode are listed in the show notes. If you'd like to stay up to date on future episode releases and other news, please follow me on Instagram or Twitter at The Scribble Story. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet again next time. Bye-bye! <laughs>